The law of God warns us, and it warns us because in the law there is life. We're not saved, of course. We aren't reconciled to God by our obedience. But the way of obedience is the way that we can expect to find blessing and joy. Now, of course, when we read through the narratives of the Old Testament, we see vivid examples of people making choices, sometimes good choices, sometimes very bad choices. And these are opportunities to glean wisdom and to see the outcome of decisions. God has placed these things for us here, not only to drive us to grace in Christ, but also to drive us to the grace of sanctification, which comes by the Holy Spirit through Christ. Now, if you haven't done so, I invite you to turn to 2 Samuel, to chapter 3. If you weren't here last week, last week focused on how the house of David was growing stronger and stronger, and the house of David referred to the people who were allied with him. Remember that the kingdom of Israel at this point, the tribes are divided. Only Judah at this point has taken sides with King David. The other tribes are allied with the house of Saul. Saul has passed away, but his son Ishbosheth has been placed on the throne by a general named Abner. And the text at this point turns the attention, says, What's going on in the house of Saul? We've seen the house of David. What about the house of Saul? Let's pick up the text at verse 6 and give our attention to the word of the Lord. While there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David, Abner was making himself strong in the house of Saul. Now Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah, the daughter of Ea, and Ishbosheth said to Abner, Why have you gone into my father's concubine? Then Abner was very angry over the words of Ishbosheth and said, Am I a dog's head of Judah? To this day I keep showing steadfast love to the house of Saul your father, to his brothers and to his friends, and have not given you into the hand of David. And yet you charge me today with a fault concerning a woman? God do so to Abner and more also, if I do not accomplish for David what the Lord has sworn to him, to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah from Dan to Beersheba. And Ishbosheth could not answer Abner another word because he feared him. Let's ask for the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Our Heavenly Father, we ask this evening that you would please illuminate our consideration of this text, speak through your servant, build us up as you desire, turn us back to your way as needed. We ask these things in the precious name of Christ, knowing that you are faithful. In his name we pray. Amen. I wonder if you recall the famous response that Jesus gave to the scribes and Pharisees when they accused him of casting out demons by the power of Satan. Here Satan is casting out demons and they say, oh, you're just doing that by the power of Satan. That's, that's where you have your power. And they are not willing to acknowledge that God has anointed him with the Holy Spirit. And Jesus' response in Mark chapter 3 is understandably memorable. He says, verse 23 through 25, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. 
And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. In other words, Jesus is saying that angels and demons know better than to intentionally work against their own designs. Humans, however, are not always so wise. They are often divided against one another. And while for a few years the house of Ishbosheth, the house of Saul, seemed to be on the rise, already just a few years in, you begin to see fractures. We're going to observe those more closely this evening as people come to be divided against one another. And through this, the Holy Spirit is essentially providing two things for his covenant people throughout all times. In the immediate circumstance when this was heard, this text would have been a reminder. Those who set themselves up against God's chosen king, their plan is doomed to fail, often at their own hand. But those who wait on the promise of the Lord have the expectation God in his time, in his way, will bring the kingdom. David, at this point, he's just sitting there, as it were. He's not in that house sending spies and having them lie and do things to each other. He's sitting back and he's waiting on the Lord, and the Lord is being faithful to his promise. These are the things that the Lord desires us to consider tonight. Because is it not true, at times, we are very much tempted to switch sides in practice, if not openly. We're tempted to say that the people who ally with this world, with this age, who make themselves or anyone else their ruler, who will be governed by their fleshly desires, that they have it good. They often live to an old age and they, they die a seemingly restful death. And that's the word in Psalm 23. Psalm, or rather Psalm 73. Psalm 73 is all about a priest having the realization it seems like the wicked have it good. And we have to be called back to faithfulness to Christ, to persevere in his way, believing the kingdom does belong to God's people. It does. And so as we consider this passage, we're going to consider it under two main headings. I'll announce each of them as we come to them. The first is this. We're going to just take some time, work through this story. There are details in this which are implied that we need to understand. And we're going to observe how a kingdom that seemed to rise by the wisdom of the flesh then begins to crumble. We need to understand the dynamic in this story. And then we're going to spend some time looking at what lessons we can draw from it. But first, remember with me how it all began. Do you remember how it is that Ishbosheth ends up on a throne? It wasn't that God chose him, God clearly chose David. God sends the prophet Samuel just as he did before sent him to King Saul, and he anoints David, but Ishbosheth was chosen by a person. In fact, 2 Samuel chapter 2 verse 8, 2 Samuel 2 verse 8, but Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth. Even the verb there is telling, took him and not asked him, sought him, pleaded with him. We start to see who's really driving the bus. Abner took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim, and he made him king over Gilead and the Asherites, and Jezreel, and Ephraim, and Benjamin, and all Israel. This is a boastful claim. He's not actually exercising authority in all of these places, but he's asserting authority. And you might imagine that at the early stages of this, Ishbosheth is thinking, I'm going to have power, and this is all working out very well for me. 
I'm going to have power, even though it's being given to him by somebody else who's the real power. But Ishbosheth is able to entertain the idea, this is a kingdom that's going to last. I am going to be very favored. Now, on what grounds does Abner do this? What right does he have to choose a king? Under other circumstances in the world, countries arrive at rulers by a whole variety of means. But Israel was not other countries. God had specifically stated the terms and conditions on which they could have a king. And so by what right does Abner have to make a king, and by what right can Ishbosheth receive it? The best case scenario, the best case scenario is that this has to do with worldly wisdom, misguided goodwill. And that is often what is at work as one of the major motives in people who seek a counterfeit kingdom. Worldly wisdom. They don't stop to ask, what has God revealed? They aren't even seeking to know the God who has imposed upon us this sense that there is right and wrong. What is his desire for us? And so that would be the best case. The worst case is that there is fleshly ambition driving Abner and Ishbosheth in the house of Benjamin. I'm inclined to believe that it's mostly the latter. Not because I knew them, but because I know myself and because I know, and you know, human beings in general. That as there's a power vacuum, as one king dies, naturally the people who have the power at that time, the, ty- uh, the tribe of Benjamin, says, if it goes to Judah, we will lose what we have. We don't get the right to tax. How many battles were fought at the end of the day over taxation? And that people want a cut of the pie. How much was over prestige? Go from being the royal house to not royal. What person who's ever been royal wanted to go back to not being royal? As a rule, that's not how it works. People want to hold on to things according to fleshly desire and wisdom. And the question is, can you have those things while living in rebellion to God's will and God's kingdom? Of course, up to this point, God had never promised that the kingdom would pass down through the line of fathers and sons. That is what is natural in the world, usually. But the Lord did not promise that. And in fact, through Samuel, he made it very clear his intention was otherwise up to this point. And so I'm inclined to believe, I think the text points us to believe that had they been seeking God's will, they would have waited to see what the prophet would do. Now, for a time, a couple of years, it seems like the kingdom is rising. And that's how it is in the world and how it is with individuals too. For a time, when you put yourself against the Lord's will, it will seem like things are going well. You may get some of the goals that you had. You're becoming wealthier. You're gaining the friends that you wanted. You are having the experiences you longed for. It's true on the individual level and also on the national level. For a time, a kingdom set against the Lord may seem to prosper. But look with me at verse 7. There you see the beginning of the tension. Verse 7, while there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David... Abner was making himself strong in the house of Saul. Now, when he says making himself strong, it means basically shoring up political power, influence, and wealth. Making sure he has all the keys on his key ring. He controls everything. Although you do have to ask, why does he need to be more powerful than he already is? Abner made the king... He put Ishbosheth in place. He's already the effective leader. 
He is the commander of all the military. Why is he making himself strong? Many commentators have understood the fact that it says in the house of Saul, not in Israel, as suggesting that he's even trying to position himself to either usurp David or ultimately to defect, that he's bringing people along with him. Now, we can't know for sure what is motivating Abner. What we can understand is that Ishbosheth, I think, understandably starts to wonder whose side is Abner on? Is Abner for me or is he for David or is he for himself? Because he's got a lot of power and Ishbosheth realizes, I'm just a puppet. And if this man wants me off the throne, he can take me off the throne. And that's frightening. At this point, then, we see Ishbosheth accuse Abner. Verse 7 describes the accusation. Basically accuses him of sleeping with Abner's former concubine. The most that needs to be said at this point about this is that this in all likelihood, based on what we know of ancient Near Eastern cultures, which is a lot, the amount of data that has come down to us strikingly concerning ancient Near Eastern cultures is immense because one of the primary vehicles for them to preserve their records for a long time was to put it in cuneiform in a clay tablet, which second to stone was about the most durable thing there is. And so we know that as a rule, among royal families, the former wives or concubines of a king were considered off-limits to all others. Nowadays, if, a, if a, even a president, if he should pass away and his wife remarries, I don't know that anyone would bat an eye at that at all. Of course, she has freedom to do that. It was not looked at that way. In fact, many cultures practiced what was called sati in some cultures and other names elsewhere, whereas it was expected when the king dies, his concubines will be killed and laid to rest with him because they had the view that, now Israel didn't believe this, but others thought, one, no one else is worthy of the king's women. Two, the women should go with him into whatever afterlife there is and be with him there. And then three, very practically, Again, we can turn up our nose at ancient cultures, but they did things usually for reasons. It was to not confuse bloodlines. Who's royalty? And so this is not at all to justify past deeds. Again, we have to distinguish between what is descriptive and what is prescriptive. The Bible describes lots of things it does not prescribe us to do. But here there's an accusation that he's gone in, that Abner's gone in to one of Saul's former concubines. If that's true, then he is at least guilty of a serious breach of respect for the royal house. Even worse, possibly, he's positioning himself to be recognized as having a claim on the throne. Now, it is impossible to know for sure if Abner was guilty. Abner is one of the most complicated characters in the Old Testament. He is hard to figure out, and it's probably why he excelled in politics, It's unsurprising. You can never quite tell, is he sincere or is he not? But look at his answer, his response, verse 8. Then Abner was very angry over the words of Ishbosheth and said, Am I a dog's head of Judah? Probably he means, Do you think that I am loyal to them, that that's where I get my food, that I am subservient to that king David? Are you accusing me of treason? 
He says, to this day, I keep showing steadfast love to the house of Saul, your father, to his brothers and to his friends, and have not given you into the land of David. And yet you charge me today with a fault concerning a woman. Notably, he doesn't affirm or deny. He doesn't tell us. What he does seem to get at here, the primary thing he's offended by, is he sees in Ishbosheth's words an accusation that he's not truly loyal. That he's not loyal. Before we condemn Abner, because we don't have anyone else's words to go on, we should recall what stands in the background of this story. Who was Ishbosheth's father? Do you recall? Saul. Did Saul not have a habit, a murderous tendency to accuse people, to be suspicious of even the people who were most loyal to him? And so many people look at this and they say, look, this, it may be that Abner was totally faithful. And Ishbosheth is his own worst enemy. And however it works out, he manages to trigger Abner into defecting. You've heard it said before, the best defense is a good offense. And now Abner goes on the offense based on this. He is offended. He is effectively more powerful, and he is not going to stand to be accused. Look at me at verse 9. God do so to Abner and more also, if I do not accomplish for David what the Lord has sworn to him, to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel and Judah, from Dan to Beersheba. We can only imagine, especially as in all likelihood this is not done in private. In all likelihood this is a public event. The very fact that the words are recorded, the fact that kings generally handle their business among an entourage, the court, you can just imagine the look on Ishbosheth's face when he hears this. He knows in all likelihood he is a dead man if he doesn't have Abner backing him. Ishbosheth, verse 11, could not answer Abner, another word, because he feared him. And so the kingdom is now beginning to unravel. Unravel for this man who for a period of time thought that he could stand against the Lord's will, that he would be able to hold on to this vision of his own might, his own power in this age. There's an account, it seems entirely credible, It's found in a number of historical books about Hitler going on a train ride. This is towards the end of World War II, going on a train ride with the king of Sweden. And he's basically on this ride to tell the king of Sweden that he needs him to stay in the war and to comply and to do certain things. And the king of Sweden had heard all kinds of rumors of the weakness of Germany at this point. He knew that Hitler famously did not smoke. You have on the other side Winston Churchill who smoked for everyone. And then you've got over here uh, Hitler who famously did not smoke anything, which was uncharacteristic in his time. And he became very angry anytime someone smoked around him. The king of Sweden strategically took a drag off of his cigarette and blew it in the face of Hitler. And Hitler did not show anger. And the king of Sweden then wrote back to his officials and said, They need us. They are weak and they are doomed. Because he knew that if Hitler had strength at that point, he would never have tolerated it. It was a calculated risk. But he thought, now I know he's weak. And there's a similar moment here historically where there's going to be a shift that will affect 
thousands, hundreds of thousands of lives. We can't just, even though, you know, there's four or five names in many of these stories, God's whole covenant people are affected by these things. And they can be affected by even a small group of people saying, we will have our kingdom now. We will be led by fleshly desires now. Everyone lives in the consequences, especially when leaders seek to build their own kingdom here. And so it begins to crumble from within. Now, next week, Lord willing, we'll see how this plays out, what Abner actually does and whether or not David will respond. But at this point, what we're going to do is simply think about and dwell on some of the lessons from this. What is the Holy Spirit imposing on us? How would God's people under the old covenant have read the story and understood it? And then does that have a parallel for us today? In the first place, this part of the narrative serves as a warning of God's providential warning, uh, providential working that everyone who places themselves against God's kingdom, their plan is doomed to crumble. Can you think of any prophecy in the scriptures which has failed? And yet, all the time, people who in other ways acknowledge the word seem to think that the Lord will not make good on his warnings. 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 1 I don't ask you to turn there, it's very brief, but listen. This is when the Lord sends the prophet Samuel to anoint David. And the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. From that point forward, God has made clear, David is going to be his king. And yet, it will be a long time before that's fulfilled. How much more all that opposes Christ's kingdom? We have to, on the one hand, receive consolation from that, but on the other hand, take warning. In a mixed group, all the time, we have to remember that. There are people who are flirting with the idea of turning aside to a different faith. We go to our classes meetings, the gathering of the 12 or so churches in our region twice a year, And we often receive requests for advice from other churches where they want to know how do we help someone? How do we take care of them? What do we do in a situation that's complex? And here and there, it's people who, for instance, are exploring a a different religion. And you wonder, where did that begin? How did that go? And you hear oftentimes, oh, all religions are basically the same. They all teach the same thing. That's not true. And I address the children especially. It's not true. All the religions of the world basically have one thing in common in distinction from our own. All of them suppose one of these two things. Either God will accept you on the basis of your relatively good works. If you're basically good or very good, God will accept you, but it's your own goodness, your own merit. Or God is not so holy that he would actually judge That is what all the systems of the world, go, search them, read them, what they have in common. That's radically different than the government of grace that God has set up in Jesus Christ. And yet people turn aside from the promise of the gospel, and they seek to find something, and I wonder what it is that drives them, and is it not on some level to wear the crown upon their own head, to have a kingdom of a sort? Or they turn aside into an apostasy simply of the flesh, They want to live the life they want to live. Christianity 
is not tried and found wanting, it's tried and found difficult, and people turn aside. And it is, it is, if you have any normal amount of zest for whatever is wrong, it's hard to walk the straight path for a long time. And yet, there is no opposing the kingdom of Christ. Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, Jesus says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And the same goes for any other idol. Christ will be king. And anyone who sets himself up against his having the final say over all things will find themselves in a crumbling situation, whether in this age or at the judgment to come. Matthew chapter 12, verse 25, Jesus says something very similar to what he said in Mark 3. Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every house divided against itself will not stand. When a person allies with this world, for a time the enemy makes them believe that they will be strong and that he's going to give them the things that they want. And maybe he even will turn over a certain amount of that. It's for a different discussion, by the way, how the enemy is able to turn over certain things. It is apparent from Scripture. Understand that the enemy truly is powerful. And when Jesus is tempted by Satan, and Satan says, I will give you all the kingdoms of this world, it's not an entirely empty boast. For a time, he has tremendous sway upon the heart's of fallen people. But at the end of the day, he is more willing to defect than Abner. He is going to leave you. He will leave you and he will laugh as you are judged. Think of the shortness of the human life in our fallen condition relative even just to the span of known history. Humans are here today, gone tomorrow. Grass withering in the sun. The Bible tells us that Satan has not ceased to be this whole time and how it must give him a perverse pleasure to see kingdoms rise and fall and to see kings boast and then lie in the grave and go to hell and to see individuals persuade themselves they have the good life when the good life is only found in union with Jesus Christ. His is the kingdom. When Jesus was born, or just before he was born, the Lord sent an angel, Gabriel, and he announced this in Luke chapter 1, verse 33. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. Only true of Christ. I just read yesterday of a certain king in India in around the 1500s. And this king in India, who in his own time was looked at like an Alexander, so powerful, so effective, was so vain and proud that he had the calendars changed over to mark the new beginning of all history with his birth. Do any of you know his name? No. And yet we still remember time in the calendar according to Christ. And even as the world tries to hide it, we always have to say, what are you actually referring to? 
You can make a common era, but common relative to what? The announcement of the gospel of Jesus Christ come among us. His kingdom will never end. Even as we pray in the Lord's Prayer, and it should be something we pray every single day, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. What does that mean for you? That means take heart. Take heart. If you are united with Christ, the flesh at times, I know some of you, some of you, we have, we're tempted predominantly in different ways. People have different sins they struggle with. And I know for some of you, there is a yearning to be accepted and to have the esteem and something of a name in this world. And it's simply, in all likelihood, not going to happen if you are maintaining faithfulness to Christ. And you will struggle with that. But hear what Jesus says in Luke 12, 32. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Abner said, I will give David the kingdom. God was just using Abner. God can use whatever means he desires. And our hope as Christians is that all providence is working through God's hand for our good. The kingdom will be ours. Let's ask the Lord to cement these things within us. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for bringing us back to look upon Christ enthroned and to remember your promises to us. We ask that you would help us this coming week, this very evening, to acknowledge our King, to be loyal to him, not to put our finger to the wind and ask where we will find the most carnal pleasure or admiration in this age, but only to ask what he desires, and to believe that dwelling with him is far better. Whom have I in heaven but you, O Lord? There is no one else I desire. We ask that you would please impart these things, not only to our understanding, but transform our wills. We ask these things in order that we might manifest your presence and kingdom, not only among one another, but in the world. For in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.